Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the evening of the Lord's Day and for the accumulation of blessing that we have experienced together as your people here and in our homes and families, for the genius of this one day in seven that you have given to us to refresh us and to call us into these joyful assemblies to praise you and to be recalibrated in our thinking and in our affections and in our relationships to one another, and especially in our knowledge of Yourself, Your grace, and Your ways. You are a great God. You move in mysterious ways. We cannot trace the footsteps that You plant in the sea, nor see Your face as You ride upon the storm. We thank You that You have given us Your Word as lenses by which we may behold and trust the One who is invisible and catch a sense both of His glory and of His grace. And we pray that as we study Your Word together, that You would open it to us by Your Holy Spirit and open our hearts to its truth, we pray, and cause us this evening to be bowed in wonder and love and praise before the majesty of Your ways. So we come, and again we pray, speak, Lord, for Your servants are listening. Hear us then, and answer us from heaven, Your dwelling place. Speak to us, each and all, through Your Word, we ask, for Jesus Christ, our Savior's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Our Scripture reading this evening is in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 11, and we read there verses 25 through 32 as we come almost now to the end of these three chapters, Romans 9 and 10 and 11, that we have been studying together since the beginning of the year. I I think I'm still roughly on the 18-month schedule. Uh, It's a while since I've counted, but I do mean to try and keep my promise and not miss the mark. The word that Paul uses, of course, for sin means to miss the mark, and I don't want to be an illustration of what he's been speaking about, but we have spent some time on these chapters, and we have two more studies to go, and we're reading tonight in chapter 11 and verses 25 through 32. You'll find this in the Pew Bible. There should be, I think, a black Pew Bible in the rack in front of you if you need to follow along, which I think tonight you certainly will need to do. So let's hear God's Word, Romans chapter 11 and verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, or and so, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, Isaiah chapter 59, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob 
and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that He may have mercy on all. And let's just read the next verse to which we'll come in the future, Lord willing. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways. Well, we've come really to the climax, if not quite to the great doxology of praise that breaks out at the end of Romans chapter 11 of three staggering chapters. I hope you felt as we've studied through the first three chapters of Romans and then the section that has followed about how it is that God justifies the ungodly, and then those glorious chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 in which He elaborates on what it means to be in Christ and to be justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. And now, almost at the end of these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, that there are several different atmospheres in Paul's letter to the Romans. It is a most remarkable book. It's a great symphony in several movements, isn't it? And each movement of this gospel symphony has its own extraordinary atmosphere to it. But it's still maybe a puzzle to some of us why on earth we should be spending three solid months on Sunday evenings talking about chapters 9, 10, and 11. We can understand why we would spend time on chapters 1 through 8 because they concern our need and God's provision for our need, or on chapters 12 through 16 because they take us into the nitty-gritty daily ups and downs of the Christian life and the Christian church. But from one point of view, since almost all of us here this evening are Gentile Christians, why do we spend three months when Paul is largely here speaking about God's work and God's purposes in Israel among Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh, as he calls them. But we shouldn't be asking that question for this single reason, that the church in Rome seems largely to have been composed, as our church is, not by Jewish believers, but by Gentile believers. As we said the other Sunday, most Jews had been thrown out of Rome around the year 50 AD by Claudius. 
And it certainly looks to me as though however many Jewish believers there had been in the church at Rome, by and large the Roman church was already dominated by probably more Gentile Christians than by Jewish Christians. And so, it seems to me it's probably to Gentile Christians in particular that Paul is writing chapters 9 and 10 and 11. Yes, of course, he is struggling with a great personal burden. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, have not come to faith in Jesus Christ. He's struggling with a great theological burden. How is it that with the whole of the Old Testament and all of these divine promises, have the promises of God, has the Word of God failed? And as he works through these things, he gives us resolutions to these difficulties, his own struggles. But I've only hinted in passing at another reason why this is so important for the Apostle Paul to deal with, because he is profoundly concerned about the relationship between Jewish and Gentile believers in the church in Rome. If I can give you a little preview, a trailer, as it were, of what is to come if you turn over a page to chapter 14, verse 1, right through to chapter 15, verse 7, he comes to deal with a very real problem in the church in Rome. And it looks as though that problem is related to a tension, and there were tensions in many early churches in the relationship between the Jewish Christian style of life and the Gentile Christian style of life. And then you see in chapter 15, verse 8, he makes an amazing statement about the Lord Jesus. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So he's saying, this has got to do with the work of Jesus Christ. Because, of course, as he writes elsewhere and speaks in Galatians in his letter to the Ephesians, part of the purpose of Jesus Christ is to unite Jew and Gentile by grace through faith in the one body, in the one new community. And when we come nearer the end, we discover one of Paul's great burdens in life. Do you know what it was? This may surprise you. It was raising money. You didn't know that Paul was a money raiser, but Paul had a passion for raising money, not, of course, to put into his own pocket, but in order that he might go to Jerusalem with a grand financial offering from the Gentiles as an evidence of Gentile Christian unity with Jewish believers in the mother church. And he speaks about that towards the end of chapter 15, when he says that he is wanting to go to Jerusalem so that his service may be acceptable to the saints. And we read elsewhere in the New Testament what that service is. It's this amazing 
first century world shattering display of unity that nothing on earth can accomplish except the salvation of Jesus Christ. I've been joking with some of our office bearers about the fact that our church may be the only church in the history of our denomination this year that has had a Scotsman as the moderator of the elders and an Englishman as the moderator of the deacons. There could be no greater indication that God creates unity in Jesus Christ than that a Scotsman and an Englishman would share in that kind of leadership. Now, this is even more remarkable. You imagine Scots taking an offering to London for the poor English. It's unthinkable. Well, it may be thinkable, but if it's thinkable, it's probably impossible. And so the gospel that Paul preaches brings such glorious unity, and this is why he wants to demonstrate to this church that God has been working His purposes out as year succeeds to year. And as we read these chapters, we begin to see why it is that earlier on in the letter he's placed such emphasis on the fact the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And why he asked the question, is God the God of the Jews only? No, God is the God of the Gentiles also. And now we need to ask, is God therefore the God of the Gentiles only? And Paul, I believe, is teaching us here, no, God is the God of the Jews also. And so he moves to this climax of praise to God here in verses 33 through 36, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things by this remarkable pattern that by divine illumination he sees God has been working out that in the crucifixion of Christ, Jesus was rejected by his own people, but that rejection has brought salvation to the world. And the ongoing pattern that he's experienced, every synagogue he's entered, he's been thrown out of as the message of Christ has been rejected by his kinsmen all over the Mediterranean world. And he's seen that yet God has used that in order to bring the Gentiles to faith in Jesus Christ. But then you remember his great point in verse 13. If their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their literally fullness mean? And you see his argument. If blessing has come through their rejection of Christ, surely unimaginable blessing is intended when his kinsmen according to the flesh respond to Jesus Christ in faith. And so he says in verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are 
the branches. And we saw that he went on to apply this, first of all, to his own ministry. Remember that? His own ministry is to the Gentiles, and yet as he ministers to the Gentiles, one of the thoughts in his mind is, Lord, create jealousy in the hearts of my kinsmen according to the flesh as they see these blessings that were promised to them in the Old Testament Scriptures, as they see these blessings belonging to another people. Make them jealous. I've never forgotten playing soccer with one of my boys when he was very small, and as we were kicking the ball, there was another father taking, I think, a probably rather unruly son out of the park. And as the father heaved on the son, the son kept turning back and looking at what my son and I were doing, playing with this football. And all over his face was, oh, I wish I could be in that family instead of being in this family. Maybe he felt better the next day. But that's what Paul longs to see. That envy, that jealousy, that longing for the treasures that had been promised to Israel beginning to form on the taste buds and in the hearts and affections of his own people so that they might see that all their longings were really to be met in the Savior, Jesus Christ. And then, of course, he applies all this to the Gentiles, probably the majority in the church, to us. And this is a very subtle thing, isn't it? The gospel came to us because it was rejected by Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh, so now they get their comeuppances, and we are the boys and the girls. And Paul says, do not be conceited about this. Do not harden your heart towards my kinsmen according to the flesh in this way because you stand so long as you bow in thankful gratitude to the Lord for all that He has done for you. And now when he comes to verse 25, he seems to want to apply that even further, doesn't he? Lest you be wise in your own conceits, he says, I want you to understand this mystery brothers. And here I think he's probably addressing them all. He's still particularly got the Gentile majority in mind, no doubt, but he's, he's addressing them all. This is his characteristic way of embracing them all. And we've seen him do it just from time to time. Now, brothers, he says, there's strong emotion here. He says, brothers, here's my passion at the end of this long exposition I've been giving to you. I want you to understand this mystery. Or more literally, I don't want you not to understand this mystery. And so he's about to say to us, you've been looking at the riddle. And I'm about to disclose to you the meaning of the riddle. What is the meaning of the mystery? Well, actually, we might even say, what is the mystery? Sounds like a seminary exam question to me. 
What is the mystery? Discuss. Worth 20 points. But all we need to do is take a sneak preview almost at the end of Romans, and we'll discover what for Paul a mystery is. A mystery for Paul is defined virtually in chapter 16 and verses 25 and 26. Very last words, really, of his letter. He says, "...to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery." Now, here is what a mystery is. The secret that was kept for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings, I think he's speaking about the beginnings of the New Testament Scriptures here actually, has been made known to all the nations. A mystery is not so much a, a, a problem that we can't understand as it is a truth or a reality that we can only come to appreciate when God discloses its real meaning. And the New Testament, particularly Paul, of course, speaks in several different places about the fact that there are secrets that have been hidden in the heart of God that now through Jesus Christ and in the gospel, God has begun to disclose. His amazing plans now begin to come clear. And they're focused on Jesus Christ, the mysteries of the Old Testament Scriptures, the figure of the Son of Man and the suffering servant and the coming king and the high priest after the order of Melchizedek and the prophet who would be like Moses. They're all riddles, mysteries within the Old Testament. But now in Jesus Christ, it's all made clear because God has disclosed the purposes He's had hidden in His heart from before the beginning of time. And Paul is now saying in connection with this movement of God among the Jews and the Gentiles and the Gentiles and the Jews, that there is a mystery here that God wants us to understand, and Paul does not want us to be ignorant of it. And you'll notice, as he speaks about this mystery, that would be unknown to us unless God revealed it to us. He's really saying three things. Number one, in verses 25 and 26, he's speaking about the nature of this mystery. Second, in verses 26 and 27, he gives us biblical testimony to this mystery. And thirdly, in verses 28 through 32, he provides us with a further explanation of this mystery. And it's on the first of these in verses 25 and 26, the nature of the mystery that I want us to try and focus our attention this evening. It might seem strange to some of us that Paul says he doesn't want us not to know about this mystery, because these verses, as many of you will certainly know, have been shrouded in debate and controversy throughout the years. 
I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so, or in the ESV, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Almost every single one of these words has come under scrutiny. What does Paul mean by all Israel? What does he mean by the fullness of the Gentiles? What does he mean by in this way or literally and so? And there are doubtless some among us who are absolutely convinced that we know exactly what Paul means. The problem is those of us who are most convinced and who may well be equally godly and schooled in Scripture are not able to agree. Well, what you do then is you find the best Christian interpreter you can, except in this case, you can't. Well then, since we are a Reformed church, we find the Reformed interpretation. And again, I say you can't. I've told you before, I have more than a hundred commentaries on Paul's letter to the Romans, many of them written by the great Reformed commentators all through the generations. And I search in vain to be able to unify their understanding of these words. Now, rather than that alarm us, I think it underlines a very important principle of biblical prophecy in general and Paul's prophetic revelation here in particular, and that is that the interpretation of any biblical prophecy is given its fullest meaning only when that prophecy is fulfilled. It's a very important point to grasp. The interpretation of any biblical prophecy is given its fullest and clearest interpretation only when that prophecy is fulfilled. And therefore, it seems to me, we ought to exercise a certain caution as we explore Scripture here with as much care and time as will be allowed this evening, not to demand of this passage that Paul will give us detailed answers to questions that will only be fully and finally answered when the reality itself is revealed. But it may help you, and I think it's, it's proper for me to say this to you. I hope not confusing to say this to you. If any interpretation of this passage doesn't fill me with zeal for evangelism, I may have the right interpretation, but I've got entirely the wrong reading. You understand that? Paul's concern throughout these passages is that people should be saved. And if I think I've got the right interpretation of a passage like this, and I am not the more filled with concern that others may be saved, I may have read Paul's mind 
but missed Paul's point. And that needs to be driven home into the hearts of Christian people, that prophetic teaching in Scripture is not here to make us armchair theologians who care nothing and do nothing for the salvation of the world, but to share the burden of Jesus Christ that's expressed here in the burden of the Apostle Paul for God to work salvation in those who are not yet saved. Now, what I plan to do tonight is simply to walk you through this passage. I'm well aware, I've read many of my commentaries, I'm well aware of all the different niceties of views, but I want to try and present to you this evening what seems to me to be the most consistent reading of what Paul is trying to say here. And so I'm going to ignore all the controversy. Those things are not profitable for all of us. They're of interest to some of us who are interested in controversy. But I simply want us to try and bow our minds before this passage of Scripture and see if we can uncover what it is that the Lord might be saying here to us through His Word. And so, first of all this, the apostle says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now, he's been teaching us that all the way through, hasn't he? This was his great argument at the beginning. The hardening that has come upon Israel is not total, because I myself am a believer, because as in the days of Elijah, as James said to Paul in the Acts of the Apostles, Paul, look at the thousands of our people who have become believers in Jesus Christ. So the hardening that is real is only partial. I want you to understand, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What on earth is the fullness of the Gentiles? Well, I think Paul gives us a little indication later on in chapter 15 and verses 15 and 24 when he speaks about his own ministry. He tells us that his own ministry has been intended as a priestly service of the gospel so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say that he feels that there is a sense in which the fullness of his ministry in these areas in which he's been ministering, he has fully preached the gospel of Christ. And his sense of fullness seems to be that the gospel has penetrated everywhere that God has sent him, because he's looking forward to the gospel penetrating literally everywhere among the Gentiles, so that when that fullness has arrived, God in His amazing wisdom will do something very remarkable. That partial hardening that's come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has arrived or come in. 
And that, that, that little word, until, gives you just a little hint that perhaps the partial hardening is not going to go on forever until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, or literally, and so, or and thus, which sometimes in the New Testament, in Paul's letters and elsewhere, has a chronological sense about it. In this way, something is going to happen. All Israel will be saved. Now, of course, he's not speaking here about every single Israelite. The expression, all Israel, is a biblical expression, and it doesn't refer to every single Israelite, either who has ever lived or who is living at a particular time in history. It refers to the totality of the people in some general sense. And I think what Paul is actually saying here is this, that when the gospel has penetrated to the ends of the earth, to the entirety of the Gentile world, and the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then in His mysterious saving grace, God will lift the veil from the eyes of His ancient people, and multitudes of them will see and seek Jesus Christ as their Savior. And in this way, you see what he's saying? He is saying, God gave this promise to His people, and they rejected it. And as a result of their rejection, the fullness of the preaching of the gospel has extended to the Gentiles. But then, when that work of God has come, as it were, to the edge of the circumference of our world, then God, as it were, who has had His hand in sovereign providence, keeping that veil upon the eyes of His ancient people, will remove that hand. The veil will be lifted. Men and women of Abraham's race will come and seek the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, it seems to me, as we saw last week, is why Paul says if their rejection of Christ has meant salvation for the world and their ongoing rejection has brought salvation to the Gentiles, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Incidentally, I think if he'd meant to say the resurrection, he would have said the resurrection. In Philippians chapter 3, you remember, he says, I'm looking forward to the resurrection. I don't think he's speaking here about the resurrection. He's speaking here about an event or a series of events or a period or a happening of God that can be equated only with spiritual life coming from an olive tree that seemed to have been completely dead, to use the illustration that he uses here. And so, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, 
the fullness of the Jews of Israel will come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, apart from other considerations, that seems to me to be a view that's entirely consistent with Paul saying this is a mystery. Most Gentiles would never have worked this out for themselves, would they? Or would any Jew? No, this is an amazing plan of our great God. And you see in a way how as Paul has wrestled through this whole question of his kinsmen and he's, he's working through the purposes of God and the sinfulness of man, you begin to see that God has illumined his mind to come to a resolution that enables Paul to be stable in a very unstable world, to say to him, Paul, you remember that there was a time when the Gentiles were separated from God, and none of the promises of God were reaching out from the children of Abraham, and the Gentiles were under a veil. But God has lifted that veil. And now as His promised people have a veil over their eyes, God is going to lift that veil again, and there will be life from the dead. You see what a great mystery God has stored in his heart. And do you see, Paul, it's as though Paul is speaking to himself and saying, and now I see it. It doesn't lessen the burden I have for my kinsmen according to the flesh. Oh, that they would be saved. But it holds me stable and strong because I know God is working his sovereign purposes out as year succeeds to year. And I'm not sure, incidentally, that anything less than this would make the Apostle Paul burst out into what is the single greatest utterance, perhaps in the whole of the Bible, about the greatness and the glory of God. That, incidentally, is why I don't share the view that many whom I respect more than I could ever say take that all that Paul is saying is this, that there's a partial hardening and some will be saved and the Gentiles are coming in. And the mystery is that God has brought the Gentiles in through the partial hardening of His own people. I don't think that would make the Apostle Paul burst into this glorious doxology and say, oh God, you are unfathomably great. He could have worked that out for himself, I think. And you see what all this means? It means that all these Old Testament prophecies about worldwide expansion and the triumph of the gospel are still the hope of the Christian church. Will God lie defeated in the dust for all history by man? No, it seems the apostle is saying there will come a day. Oh, what a blessed day that would be to come when the fullness of the Gentiles have come in 
and God lifts the veil, and there is life from the dead. It's almost unimaginable what that would mean for this world to demonstrate that our God reigns. And then as He always does, it's fascinating, isn't it? He always says, now, just let me slip in here a word from the Old Testament Scriptures. And He always comes up with a passage half of us have never remembered, even if we've read it. Marvelous. So, there's the biblical testimony to the mystery. First of all, the nature of the mystery. Second, the biblical testimony to the mystery. And he appeals to Isaiah chapter 59, but it's interesting, he changes the wording. How dare he do that? Because he wants to bring out the application of the Scriptures to his own time. Isaiah 59 speaks about the Deliverer coming to Zion. Paul speaks about the Deliverer coming from Zion. There's a very similar change in Ephesians chapter 4, incidentally, when Paul says Christ has ascended on high and He's given gifts to men. The psalm from which he's quoting actually says He has received gifts from men. What's going on in Paul's mind? It's this. Christ has received gifts from men, worship and adoration, but Christ now gives gifts to men from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think it's something similar he's saying here. The Redeemer has come to Zion. That's what we'll be celebrating with the Christian church next Sunday. The Redeemer has come to Zion. He's been crucified in Zion. He was buried in Zion. He rose in Zion but thank God He hasn't stayed in Zion. He's poured out His Holy Spirit so that as Paul, it seems to me, applies this to his own people, he looks forward to that day when the Deliverer will come from Zion and banish ungodliness from Jacob, from his own people, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The new covenant that God promised, the forgiveness of sins, be realized among his own people. And notice, incidentally, that Paul assumes all along here that his kinsmen according to the flesh will be saved exactly the same way you and I are saved. Exactly the same way you and I are saved. Which, for those of you who are at all interested in the niceties, is one of the reasons I cannot share the view that this will take place after the second coming of Christ because that would be salvation partly by sight, by something happening in addition to Christ dying on the cross and rising from the grave. That's one of the reasons it seems to me Paul is speaking here about something that will happen before the return of Christ. How long before the return of Christ? I certainly wouldn't want to venture a guess, but this is the great mystery we'll all be saved in exactly the same way by faith in the crucified Redeemer, because in Him there has been a fountain opened in Jerusalem for all uncleanness, whether Jew or Gentile. And that brings us thirdly and quickly to the explanation for this mystery. 
And he puts it in these wonderful words. We could spend ages on this, couldn't we? As regards the gospel, they're enemies of God for your sake. That's their position just now. Whether Paul means God is at enmity with them or they are at enmity with God, the second is certainly true in Paul's view because they've been rejecting his son. As regards the gospel, they're enemies of God for your sake. That's how they are in themselves. But he says, oh my, as regards election, as regards God's love, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Some of us know people exactly like that, who are our enemies and the enemies of their father. But we love them for the sake of their fathers. This isn't a contradiction. This is a real thing that even we experience, never mind what Paul is saying here about God. You see what he's saying? This was true of you, incidentally. You, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, were by nature a children of wrath. But God, in His great mercy, with which He has loved us, raised us up together with Christ. No contradiction there. And you see, this is just, this is awesome to Him. This is staggering to him because he says, you see, he says, because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God is not giving up on that ancient calling. And it's been true for you just as, verse 30, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. What does that mean? By what means will God open the eyes of His ancient people? By what jealousy that He has created us as the gospel triumphs in the world? Is this what Paul is talking about, the fullness of the Gentiles, the gospel marvelously triumphing in the world, the church really being the church, and people seeing what it means to be a Christian, that all the promises of Old Testament Scripture are ours, every single one of them. We've come to enjoy them. And those of the family of Abraham look on and say, why is that family enjoying the promises that are really ours? Let's take these promises ourselves. And perhaps the Gentile evangelists, like Paul saying, there is only one door into the treasure house, and it's faith in Jesus Christ. Then we will come by faith in Jesus Christ to receive these promises. God has not reneged on His promise to Abraham that in His seed all the nations of the world will be blessed. And now you see he ties it all up. This is, this is almost the summary of everything he said in Romans so far. God has consigned all to disobedience. That's where we all are. That's Romans 1, 18 to 3, 20. None is righteous, no, not one. 
Every mouth is shut. The whole world is held guilty before God, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. That was the platform on which he built the whole letter. But wonder upon wonders, God has consigned us all to disobedience. Disobedient. You're disobedient. You're disobedient. Jew, Gentile, disobedient, disobedient in order that He might have mercy upon us and that we might see how much mercy we really need. Staggering. No wonder He breaks out into this doxology. Now, someone may say, but that makes, that makes the Jews a special case. That's a problem to me. Shouldn't be. Because Paul seems to be saying here that at the moment he's making the Gentiles a special case, you see. And he's moving on. Now, you see, until the coming of Christ and his rejection, it was the time not of the Gentiles but of Abraham's seed. Now, in the rejection of Christ, it's the time of the Gentiles and apparently not of Abraham's native seed. But the time is coming when God and his amazing providence will say there are no special cases. This sounds like Alice in Wonderland. All are special cases, all consigned to disobedience, Jew, Gentile, in order that God may have mercy upon all. This isn't universalism. You understand that. This is God bringing consummation to what Jesus died to do, to bring Jew and Gentile together in the one body of Jesus Christ. Remember how Paul says earlier on in Romans, is God the God of the Jews only? No, He's the God of the Gentiles but we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that God is the God of the Gentiles only. God will also be the saving God of His people. If I can put it like this, throughout the Old Testament into the New, God was determined He would not be defeated by Gentiles in keeping His promise to Abraham that in his seed the nations of the earth would be blessed. Do you know how many nations of the earth were blessed through Abraham's seed in the days of the Old Testament? Savingly blessed, none. But God was not defeated in his promise. Through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And now Paul seems to be saying to us, nor will God be defeated by the seed of Abraham in bringing his promise to fulfillment. Is he the God of the Jew only? No. He is also the God of the Gentile. Is he the God of the Gentile only? No, he is the God who is saving a remnant from among his people and in his mercy will one day bring in the fullness of his own people and his promise to Abraham 
who incidentally was not a Jew. He was a single individual called Abraham. In his promise to Abraham, being fulfilled, there will not be a nation, a people group under the sun in which the triumph of the gospel will not be seen. Well, I close with two verses from two very different hymn writers. Those of you who know the name of Michael W. Smith probably would suspect that I don't know the name of Michael W. Smith. And to be honest, I don't think a great deal of the verses in his song, but the chorus in one of his many songs. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. And from, if I may say so, a greater than Michael W. Smith, Isaac Watts, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. No wonder Paul's next words will be the first words of our next study in Romans. Heavenly Father, You are an awesome God, and You reign both in heaven and upon the earth. Your ways are made known to us in Jesus Christ and in the revealing of the mysteries of Your Word, and we are awestruck by those mysteries. We do not presume to come to You, our Father, as those who are without ignorance. We thank You for the hope of the gospel and for this strong assurance You give to us in Your Word that Your Son's glory will not lie in ruins and in shame upon the earth upon which His feet once walked and in which His hands were nailed to the accursed tree. And we pray, our God, that our King, by the power of His Holy Spirit, will move in triumph across the face of the earth and bring in that day when the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.